All right. Well, good morning. You doing okay? Um, that's the first and uh, pray only time I'm introduced as 2002 UConn graduate Chad Kinser. Uh, <laughs> it's like that was supposed to mean something and only just draw for laughter. Hey, it's funny because uh, the last time I was in this room was this last summer and behind those curtains and our 20-year graduation was behind that. And so uh, that's the last time I was here. But hey, it's really good to be here with you guys today. I hope you're doing okay, and uh, welcome to the Advent season. I'll get into a bit of that in just a second, but um, it's a privilege to get to be here with you guys. Uh, I hear stories all the time. Uh, in fact, on the regular, uh, every month as our elders gather across all congregations to be together the first Tuesday of the month about what's happening across all the congregations and especially here. And so it's, it's a privilege to get to actually see it uh, with my own eyes because the stories of how God is growing this congregation, bringing all sorts of new people in. I see some familiar faces when you were downtown, but there's also people who, like you've joined this congregation in the last several years uh, that, it's, that it's been alive here. So it's good to see you. It's good to be with you. Um, just a, a word of like what God is doing across all of our congregations this last year in Shawnee has been amazing. Um, some of the stuff that you guys give to every week that sort of helps ministry across not just this congregation, but other congregations, they have baptized more people this year than the last two years combined uh, out in Shawnee. So amazing stuff. That's worth clapping about. Like that's worth like, hey, God's doing stuff, not just in your own community, but all over the place. And that's a story that we're bragging about uh, across all of our congregations is what God is doing in Shawnee. And then the last thing I'll say before I pray this morning is this last week was a really special week across all of our congregations, the week of prayer, the noon hour uh, that many of you are gathering in and praying, I think, on that side of the curtain as I, as I heard it, yeah, um, uh, this last week. Um, we want our church to be a place that we don't just gather on Sundays, but a place that's scattered throughout uh, the cities that we're, we're placed in throughout the week. That's community groups, but then also a few times a year, just want to say, hey, we want our, our churches to be a place of prayer. Uh, where we aren't just doing sort of plans and initiatives and like, you know, offering hot takes and the, the next sort of flashy marketing campaign to grow a place. We, we want this to be built on the work of God, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord kind of stuff. And so that was what this last week was all about, leaning in, saying, God, we want you uh, to be the one who brings renewal in our cities. We want you to be the one who changes lives in our cities. We want you to use us to do it. But would you please attune us to your spirit? That was all capped off on Wednesday night downtown. Maybe some of you were there. It was kind of a standing room only deal. All of our congregations gathered downtown and we installed new elders, which was a big deal uh, across some of our congregations. And in this congregation, Ryan Hunter, uh, Derek Chapin, and Brooks McMillan. Brooks will be here at assume at the 11 o'clock, but um, yeah, these are men who've been serving as pastors among you, but like freshly and newly and finally and formally installed as uh, pastors in our congregation. So it'd be worth clapping for them and receiving them. Uh, they've put a lot of work in to get to that place. And uh, now that they're sort of on the ground and formally installed, we receive you brothers and the ministry God would bring through you. Uh, well, let's jump into our pastors today, jump into week two of Advent. Pastor David from Edmond was here last week. I'm here this week uh, for Isaiah chapter nine. And um, if you please pray for me, I'll pray for you and we'll get to work. Our God, we come to you today in the name of Jesus and we're grateful for the songs you've given us. We're grateful for the prayers you give us. We're grateful that on the other side of our confession of sin, you give assurance in the gospel through Jesus. And God, we're grateful that you give us a word to open. I want to just confess out loud what we all know to be true and confess to you what we believe to be true, 
that this word that we open isn't black ink on a white page, dead ancient text. This is a living and active word that's able to read us as much as we read it. It's able to do stuff to us as much as we're able to lean over to try to interpret it. And so God, I pray that everything you intend through this season and through this word and through Isaiah 9 today would be accomplished among us. We offer ourselves to you and we trust that by your word, you always accomplish your purposes. And we offer ourselves now in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. Over the last couple of weeks, uh, I've had several conversations with all different kinds of people, different kinds of people uh, from different walks of life that would have different sort of slants into the conversation we're having. But the theme of those conversations just struck me uh, a few days ago preparing for this that, hey, the theme of these conversations has really been tiredness, busyness, and stretched. Like those are words that I find people using all the time. Maybe you would sort of use some of those words to describe you. People have just been coming in from whatever place it is in life that they find themselves just saying, hey, I'm really busy. I'm really stretched. I'm really tired. Those are words that, if I'm honest, would be fair words to even describe me. And I, and I say that because what's ironic about this time of year is that we all sort of come to the end of the year maybe feeling that way. It seems like I have amnesia about that, how I felt this time last year. And it's like, oh yeah, I kind of tend to feel that way this time of year. And there's something inside of me that says, hey, shouldn't things be slowing down? Like it's the end of the year, I've put forward all kinds of labor. Shouldn't things be kind of, I'm feeling this way. Shouldn't my schedule reflect an opportunity to get some relief? And yet it, it doesn't, does it? Like it seems like this time of year, things ratchet up. The close of the year feels like something that should be slowing down, but then the close of the year, your businesses remind you, is the time to get all of it in before the end of the year, the close of the year, you know? And even if it's maybe your calendar offering opportunities of rest, you choose to busy it up with noise and parties and all the rest. You, you can find a way to busy it yourself. And so the holiday season, it, it, it has a way of sneaking up on us. Uh, this year I turned 40, and so I can officially say with Mike Gundy, I'm a man... I'm 40, right? I can do that. But I, the holiday sneaking up on me, and the reason I can offer it up that way is I feel like I have enough frame of life and reference to say, hey, things, life has just kind of moved fast. I can't believe we're already here. It's, it's already the second week of December. But maybe you're here today, and the holiday season hasn't sort of snuck up on you. You're the kind of person that, who's been in the holiday spirit since October, and you've been drinking pumpkin spice lattes and t-shirt and shorts because you can and you're just sort of glad everyone else has now decided to join the party, right? Like, hey, I've actually been listening to Christmas music, as my daughter would say, since August, right? But for others of you, maybe the holidays hit a bit harder. And each year you start to wonder how it is that you're going to sort of paint on the smile that you feel like you're supposed to have. Or how it is that you need to have the smile that you believe others want you to have. The smile that you so desperately want to have, but the years that have gone by have made it more difficult to do that. I, I know, at least in our downtown congregation, so many of the stories in the room that this time of year is an anniversary of really difficult, really difficult things. And so you're trying to sort of receive the joy of the season amidst the reminders of sorrow. But here's what I know to be true, that wherever you are today, however you're coming into the room and however you're coming into this season, there's actually something really common for all of us. 
There's a common thing, regardless of your background, regardless of your bank account, regardless of your experiences, what you think you can do or what you fear you can't do. There's actually something really common for all of us. And the Christmas season tends to bring with it, doesn't it, a desire for breakthrough. There's a desire for breakthrough that's common. A desire for something to change in you. A desire for something to change maybe in your circumstances, that maybe this time will be different. Some receive that desire and maybe you're more hopeful with it. Others, you receive that desire and you're a bit cynical. I've had desires like that before and it's all stayed the same and you're just trying to sort of bury your head and power through. But all the same, at the end of the calendar year, there's a sort of a a low grade for some, a high grade for others, sort of buzz in you that maybe something good will come my way. And so after all the labors through the course of a calendar year, maybe you're sitting here this morning, and if you're like me, there's a desire this Advent season for a breakthrough in your family. There may be some relationships that are, that are busted up can be mended. That maybe you could have Christmas with someone in the room that you haven't had Christmas with in years. Or maybe you could actually get through a Christmas without having a conversation that's gonna break it all down. Maybe others of you are sitting here and it's financial breakthrough. It's, it's financial break. It's something in your bank account that something would give and something would turn your way. Maybe it's a turn of health or a good report from a doctor. Maybe it's a breakthrough that maybe just something inside of you would be changed. Maybe something you haven't even said to the person sitting next to you that you live with, but there's a desire in you that if something could break free, if there's a place in your mind or your heart or your story that could shake loose, you would want it to happen. We don't always know what to do with these desires, do we? But my point is, it's this, that desire for breakthrough. If you could sort of lean in and just sort of capture that with me for a moment. That desire for breakthrough, that desire for change, that place of unrest, that place of unmet desire, that place that like, if it could shift, I would want it to shift. Whatever that is, if you could sort of put your finger on that for a second. Whatever that is, I want you to know that's the invitation to the Christian observance of Advent. That, that thing, that, that, it's not sort of lights and dress up and let's decorate. That's not Advent so much as it's actually unrest. One author is gonna say that Advent is an invitation into the dark. That's actually what the Christian observance of Advent is. It's an invitation into the dark and it's a longing for light. It's a longing for light. Advent, you might know, comes from the Latin word adventus. If you're new to this whole thing, why are we talking about Advent? It's a word that means from the Latin coming or arrival. And we're talking about the arrival of God. God breaking in, God breaking through, the birth of Jesus. So historically, if you think, throughout the history of the church and around the world, Christians have gathered this time of year, the weeks leading up to Christmas, to sort of be realigned by the longing that would be appropriate for us. Realigned by waiting, thinking about the burden present throughout the Old Testament for the promised Messiah to show up. And so the reason that this time of year sort of almost inherently comes with a desire for breakthrough, the reason that that's present is because that's what this year's, this season rather is all about. It's about God breaking through. That's why you want it. That's why it's there. That's why it's sort of hidden and underneath the hood is it's actually pointing you to a greater desire that, that God would break through. And so all of those places of unmet desire, all of that burden for change, This season is an invitation and a reminder, listen, 
that only God will do. For all of those unmet desires, for all of those places of burden and discontent, what you need is not a quick fix. Your deepest need is not like a new numbing technique. Your deepest need is not like, hey, let's just go on like a Netflix binge and eat some Tom and Jerry's and just bury it. Your deepest need is something only God can bring. And so what what Advent is about is that place into the dark where we understand and we know that what we need most deeply is to be affected afresh by the presence of the living God. To be lifted again by his promises, please hear this today, to be lifted again by his promises that he will show up for you. I don't know where you're walking today, but Advent is an invitation to the promise that he will, he will, he will show up for you. And so again, Pastor David last week sort of introduced the whole thing. We're trying to do this Advent season, but we're turning back to the Old Testament book, Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is amazing when it comes to what's happening this season because they are promises, prophecies, as it were, made 700 years before the birth of Jesus about what God was doing in the promised coming Messiah. Powerful, powerful stuff. And so it's true that Isaiah's words were actually God's words to the people then to shape their longing, to shape their waiting, that God hadn't forgotten them, that he would show up for them, And they were his words to them to shape, hey, wait, long, trust, lean in. But it's also true that Isaiah's words aren't just ancient abstracted words. They're also God's words to us today. Where they shaped the people's longing then, they shape our longing today. They looked to the arrival of Jesus. We look to the return of Jesus. We're still longing and waiting. It's just on the different side of the promise. And so today where we're going to be is in one of the more sort of well-known prophecies of this book, maybe something that you heard before in Isaiah 9, verse 6, a really famous passage, for to us a child is born, for to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called, you could almost say it with me, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. That's where we're going to be today, a really famous passage from the book of Isaiah. But this really powerful prophecy is actually made all the more so when you understand the setting it was given in. So I don't want us to skip to verse 6, the part we know. I actually want us to work through verses 1 all the way to verse 7. Because if we understand the setting, these already powerful words are all the more so when you see it in its context. So the first thing I want you to see today is this. Advent is about deep darkness. Advent is about deep darkness. Look back at verse 1 with me. Isaiah says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. When Isaiah says these words, you have to understand that so much of his ministry was set in a time of really intense national, political, and military turmoil. Like things were really dark in the ministry of Isaiah. At this point, the Jewish people were hardly a holy people. They certainly weren't a reflection of the heart of God that he had called them to be to the nations. The darkness that was happening all around Israel in these days was in large part due to their own choice to live out the darkness inside of them. 
They were dark people living out their dark ways, and their dark ways had the consequence of all kinds of darkness around them. At this current moment, sort of in history, they were fearful of the sort of the neighboring country to the north, the Assyrians. They were scared of the Assyrians. They were a powerful and cruel people in their day. They were scared of them taking over Israel. And so there was a string of godless kings that had led the, led the people away from the worship of God. And at this current time, King Ahaz, in a sort of a political power play effort to maintain his throne but not be overthrown by the Assyrians, had given the Assyrians access to the northern lands of Zebulun and Nephtali as if to say, you can police these areas if you promise not to take over the rest. And so the Assyrians wink at that sort of peace treaty and what they do is they move into those northern lands and they start deporting Jews back to Assyria and eventually go on and take over the rest. And so in an effort to find some sort of comfort in an effort to find some sort of national stability, they refused to look to God for help because they thought to themselves, we've done that. He's not helping us. We've got to resort to something else. Anything else could do for guidance and security. So they even resorted to dark spirituality. Chapter eight, we're gonna read a verse in a second, tells us they started attending seances, consulting witch doctors. Go back above to chapter eight, tells us a bit of the darkness in verse 19. Isaiah is trying to warn them about all of this. He says, so when they say to you, there's going to be a group of people who would say this to you, but he's warning them, don't follow them. But they're going to say to you, hey, let's inquire of the mediums. Let's inquire of the necromancers who chirp and mutter. But he's saying, should not a people inquire of their God? Don't go with them. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So when Isaiah gives these words in chapter 9, it's certainly not a bright moment for Israel. If you've ever read the opening chapter of the book of Isaiah, the book opens with this really potent rebuke of the condition of the people. God, in essence, tells Israel this time, I've raised children who have no idea about me. There are ox and there are donkeys who recognize their masters, but my children are clueless when it comes to me. God tells them he wants Israel to stop their religious festivals, stop your sacrifices, stop your prayers, stop your worship songs. Your hypocrisy is a burden to me. Stop hiding in your sins and shame. Come to me. Don't you know if you would just confess, I would cleanse you. He pleads with them to stop playing religious games. It's dark all around Israel because it's dark inside of Israel. At Isaiah's time, it's dark because of their own choosing. And so I, I named that this morning. You're saying that's not sort of a chipper Christmas opening to a sermon or something. But I say all that because in order to understand the brightness of what Advent brings, you have to understand the darkness that it's set inside of. And when you understand what's happening in Old Testament Israel, it's easy to point a finger and go, they're crazy. We would never do that. But the longer you spend with Old Testament Israel and the longer you start to know yourself, isn't it true that they're crazy actually exposes our crazy, that their darkness is actually a window into our darkness, because isn't it true that just like them, you and I are the kind of people who play religious games? We nearly look to everything else the world has to offer to satisfy us and to make us feel safe and worth something. It's not as though you don't want God, you're happy to have God, but when it really comes to your needs being met, when it really comes to a release valve to sort of offer some, you know, decompression to stress, well, then I need to look what the world has to offer, something I can buy, something I can go do, something of pleasure I can choose for myself. And many of us don't truly care to have the nearness of God. If I have the nearness of God, isn't that just icing on the cake? But what we really want is a good life according to our own preferences. 
And if God comes along with that, fine, but can I just have the life that I want? We also want to keep God close enough, just enough at arm's length so that we don't have to feel bad when we ask him to bless the things we want him to bless. Right. And so religious games in Oklahoma might not look like mixing God with witchcraft like they were doing, but religious games in Oklahoma sure do look a lot like reducing him to a lucky rabbit's foot. That you're, like, that you're, that you're happy to have sort of hangling from your rearview mirror, or you're happy to have in your pocket, or you're happy to have hanging from your neck. It's less of a luck, luck, rabbit's foot and more of a cross, but your life is hardly bent around him. You just want to have enough of him around so you can feel good about him blessing what you want him to bless, but you really don't care about having his nearness. Me too. You just want what you want. It's sort of the country music singer Jelly Roll when he says, I only talk to God when I need a favor, <laughs> you know. Hey, don't follow anyone called Jelly Roll. Right? Don't follow anyone called Jelly Roll. But here's what Isaiah goes on to say. Hey, the result of that kind of dark religion is this, verses 22 and 20, 21 and 22. He says, they're going to pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and they'll speak contemptuously, contemptuously of their king and their God and their faces will turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into deep darkness. What Isaiah is saying is the problem with fickle religion is that it only leads to more darkness. You think it might be your way out. It actually leads to worse. When things go wrong in your life, you're quick to blame God as though he's the one who's not helping. It's his fault not coming through. Never mind taking accountability for your own drift away from him. And the result of this foolishness, verse 22 says, you look to the earth as though what I really need to be satisfied is something in addition, maybe money or sex or experiences or advancement. And so we go after those things. The scary thing about going after those things is that sometimes it actually looks like it does bring the relief we want. But don't our testimonies bear witness that over time, we're only thrown into even deeper darkness. It actually didn't satisfy like I thought. Doesn't this read so many of our own internal struggles that in the end, we've chased after the world in addition to God and we're neither safe with God or the world, we're lost in both. It's a darkness outside and it's a darkness inside. And the result of their darkness, right? I wanna invite you into this. The result of their darkness and our darkness aren't too different. The question becomes, what does God do? What does God do with people who play religious games? What does he do? It's a scary question, isn't it? And it hits sort of at the place of the fear of judgment that lives on the inside of you and me because there are times where you and I don't wanna talk about judgment, we don't wanna deal with judgment because deep down we know that we have nothing to say for ourselves before the face of a living God. It's dark. It's dark out there. It's easy to point out there, but it's also dark in here. And so what does God do with people who play religious games? This is the second thing I want you to see. Advent is about deep darkness, but Advent is about great light. It's about great light. I want you to notice again the first four words of verse one because it's shocking. These are, this is words to people playing religious games, playing the fool on God, but it says in verse one, but there will be. The word of contrast but is a big deal there. You would expect a word of judgment, there will be. But it says, but there will be. Whatever's coming here is not a word of judgment, it's a word of grace. Go on to say, 
There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali, the places of deportion where you gave yourself to the enemy. But in the latter time, he's going to make glorious the way of the sea, those northern lands of the Jordan and Galilee. And it's going to be for the nations, he says. What's going on here? This is absolutely a word of grace. It's absolutely a word of kindness to, <laughs> to people playing religious games, but it's not as though God just turns a blind eye as though none of that matters. As a result of their rebellion, if you read the history, they suffered the loss of their homeland. The Assyrians took over the whole thing. And so back up in 817, Isaiah tells the people as a means of discipline, it feels like God's hiding his face. It feels like God's turned away from us. And I will tell you, he says in 817, God has hidden his face from you. It's a means of discipline to shake you awake, to call you back to him. But he says, don't despair, 817. Trust in him in the darkness. Hope in him. Wait for him. He's imploring with the people, why? It's dark. Why hope in God? Why not go somewhere else? Why? He's turned his face. Why wait for him? And Isaiah is saying, because God's faithful to his promises. I know it feels dark right now. I know it feels like God is gone, but wait and hope. Why, Isaiah? Because God doesn't lie. Because God has promised. Sin and darkness won't get the last word for his people. Don't you know a Messiah has been promised? He's going to bring deliverance. The head of that ancient serpent will be crushed. The one who led us all astray with Adam and Eve in the beginning. God's promised. He's also promised to David that through his line, one will reign over his people and it just won't be for his people. It will be for the nations. God's promised. I know it feels dark. I know it feels like he's hiding his face. He actually is, but it's for your discipline that you would turn because he's promised. Let's notice again the language of the passage. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. Preacher, why do you keep naming these places I have no idea about? Here's why. Because remember, those were the very places they gave themselves to the enemy and turned away from the promises of the living God. Here's what Isaiah is saying. I know it might be dark right now, but God is gonna do something in the very place of your shame. God is gonna do something in the very place where you gave yourself to the enemy. God's gonna do something in the very place, literally geographically, in the very place where you have given yourself to failure and exile and the place where you've been tempted to believe that God has given up on his promises and ejected on you. In that very place, he's going to show up for you and he's going to bring redemption in that place. The place of your shame will become the place of God's very presence and deliverance. That's breathtaking. You see, how can we be sure that Isaiah is not just sort of speaking motivational nothings to people in despair? Because the scriptures roll forward to Matthew chapter four. Now, when he, Jesus, heard that John had been arrested, where did he go? He went to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went up and lived in Capernaum by the sea. You're hearing familiar language. And the territory then of Zebulun and Nephtali. And he did this so that it would be spoken by the prophet Isaiah that it might be fulfilled in the land of Zebulun, the land of Nephtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling there in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in a region in a shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. 
And from that time, Jesus began to preach in that place, the place of their shame. He opened his first sermon, behold, the kingdom of God is right here right here. So here's what's happening. 700 years after Isaiah wrote these words, Jesus emerges from his wilderness temptation and he begins his public ministry to declare the invasion of God's kingdom at the very place where Isaiah's fellow Jews were being deported off to the enemy because of the darkness of the people and the failure of their kings. This is why Isaiah goes on to say in verse two of chapter nine, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. You bet they have, the light of the world. On them who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. And you have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. And they rejoice before you as with joy of the harvest. And they are glad when they divide the spoil. What Isaiah is saying is, listen, God will show up for you. God's going to show up for you. He's going to work a deliverance for you that has nothing to do with you. If you read those verses, Israel isn't the subject of any of those sentences. God's the one doing all the work. God's going to work a deliverance for you that's entirely his doing. He won't need your help. Whenever you help, it just gets weird. And you mess it up. He's going to fight for you. He fights. He wins. Those who look to him get to walk in his victory. He does all the work. And then verses four and five go on to say that with his saving work, it's gonna come with it joy. Joy like at the harvest season. For an agrarian people, there was a joy at the harvest season because it was a massive payday. In a harvest season where it looked like, I'm not sure what the crop's gonna look like this year, but then the crop comes in and where it looked like all was lost, we just got paid. There's a reason to celebrate because God's going to provide, Isaiah says, when it looks like all was lost. He also says there's going to be peace. There's going to be peace like at the end of a wartime knowing that the enemy has been decisively defeated. Look at verses four and five. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What, what's, what Isaiah is saying here is these are all references to Israel's history. He's saying, hey, remember how God didn't forget your people in Egypt? Remember that? Remember how he heard your groaning? Remember under the burden of your slavery and the rod of your oppressor? Remember the beatings of your oppressor? Remember how God didn't forget you then and he delivered you? Remember how he didn't forget Gideon and he led that tiny army on the day of Midian? If I didn't forget you then, if I didn't forget you in Egypt, if I didn't forget you in Midian, am I gonna forget you against these Assyrians? Am I gonna forget you? Two quick applications here before I turn to the final move today. In verses two to four, I want you to notice this, guys. Isaiah speaks this prophetic word about God's future deliverance, but he does so using past tense language. Look back at the passage in verse two. He says, for those who walked as though used to walk in deep darkness, on them a light has shone, as though it's already shone. They've seen a great light. And it says, you have multiplied as though the nation's already been multiplied. You've increased its joy as though, oh yeah, we've already had that kind of joy. And then he goes on to say, you have broken the rod of the oppressor as though 
it's already broken. Now this would have sounded crazy, right? Because they're going, we haven't seen any kind of light. It's real dark. The Assyrians are literally breathing down. We feel the rod of our oppressor. It's not broke. It's like literally hitting us. So catch this. What Isaiah is doing is he's speaking about God's future purposes for his people in past tense terms in order to say that God's purposes are so sure, they're so secure, that we can go ahead and talk about them even though we're not experiencing them right now, but we can talk about them as though they're already done. He will do this. He will do this. Nothing is gonna get in the way of God's saving purposes for his people. What he's saying is, hey, listen, I know there's a battle raging, but you can know the war is already won. This is like watching your favorite sports team on a recording when you already know that you've won the game. No matter how bad it looks at halftime, we got this. Bring out the hors d'oeuvres. We got this. Isaiah's point for his original hearers is this. Please, for some of you hear this today. Isaiah's point to them and Isaiah's point to us is this. God can be trusted no matter how dark. No matter how dark. No matter how dark. God can be trusted. And the second point of application is this. The place of shame became the place of God's presence. This is breathtaking. The place of shame became the place of God's presence. I so desperately, there's some of you that need to hear God can be trusted in the dark. Everyone here needs to hear, you can't possibly fail so bad as to move yourself beyond the grace of God. These people had left God for witchcraft and this promise was for them. You can't possibly fail so bad so as to remove yourself beyond the reach of God's grace. The place of their shame became the very place of God's deliverance. This is the whole message of the Bible. Romans 5 is gonna say, where sin abounds, <laughs> notice the language, where sin abounds, what does grace do? It abounds all the more. Sin doesn't have a bigger flex than God's grace does. And the place of darkness Advent is about a great light. In the place of shame, Advent is about God's arrival. This is the final turn today. How does God do it? How does God fulfill these promises? Advent is about deep darkness, great light. The last one, Advent is about a son that is given. Look at verse six. For to us, a child is born. For to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, lean in with me, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Please hear this. I'm almost done today. The deliverance that God brings has nothing to do with political strategy. They were looking for that. The deliverance that God brings has nothing to do with military force. They were looking for that. The deliverance that God brings has nothing to do with economic power plays. They were looking for that. And I name those three because that's often the stuff we look to for release. It's not politics, it's not force, and it's not money. The deliverance that God brings is the birth of a child. Like I realize saying that, that sounds crazy. 
I realize that. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. This is gonna be by God's own doing. Just in case no one can take credit for this, it's gonna happen in a way that you couldn't possibly take credit for it by the birth of a child. And it's not as though, well, let's just wait and see what he becomes. Let's wait until he grows up and see what he does. No, 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 no. Everything about this child, his conception, his birth, his final breath, everything about him is bound up in the deliverance that God is bringing. Everything. You remember at the birth of Jesus, the angels sang. It's also true to say at the birth of Jesus, the demons shrieked because they knew their time was short. At the birth of a child, demons are wilding out. Satan didn't have to wait until Jesus grew up to knew he was defeated. He knew that the day that that baby was born and those cries were coming out of that Bethlehem stable, that baby is gonna crush my skull. The people waited for this Messiah, longing for the day when God would break through. Satan also waited for the Messiah, but he waited in agony knowing that his breakthrough meant his defeat. This was deliverance. God's naming a deliverance here against an enemy far greater than Assyria. This is against an enemy that stands before you and me to oppose us before the face of a living God. He says, this is about the conquering of the enemy of Satan, sin, and death. Not even Assyria can bother you before God's face, but those things can. And I'm going to take care of those enemies. And so unless we think that Isaiah is just talking about the birth of another child, the names that this child is given tell a bigger story. This is going to be a child who is both God and man. Quickly, he is the wonderful counselor. Don't we need one of those? In the modern therapeutic movement, don't we actually need a wonderful counselor? Translated from Hebrew, this is a wonder of a counselor, a wonder ruler. This isn't just going to be a counselor. This is a miraculous, supernaturally gifted leader. If that's not enough, he's called mighty God. One who can really do something about sin. He is the everlasting father, the safety and the permanence that the reign of this child is gonna go on forever and he is gonna be a perfect reflection of God the Father. There is not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. The one who comes in the New Testament is mighty God reflecting the heart of the Father from the old. And he is the prince of peace. Listen, please hear this. Jesus doesn't just have peace. Jesus is peace. To be attached to Jesus is to be attached to peace. And you're saying, that's crazy because I feel like a mosh pit on the inside. I get it. Me too. But to be attached to Jesus is to be attached to peace. What I mean is no matter how dark it feels as though it gets, God's purposes will not fail for you. He will work peace for you. It's not so much peace tranquility all the time as it is an arc of tranquility over your life. He is peace. He is peace. And Isaiah goes on to say that everything about God's kingdom will rest on his shoulders. He's saying everything is going to hinge on Jesus. 
The arc of history is bending to Jesus. Everything hinges. He's never going to be defeated. There's no end of the increase of his reign. And Isaiah so deeply and badly wants us to know that what God is offering through this child is grace stronger than all the ways that we fail him and grace stronger than all the ways that we wander from him. And he's so fixed on this that verse seven is the jazz hands big finish. Verse seven, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's not up for grabs. What Isaiah is saying 700 years before Jesus came was not negotiable. It's not negotiable, not because he had power to say these words. It's not negotiable because it's rooted in the God who will work all his promises, his zeal. There's a red-faced passion to our God. There's like a, it's not negotiable, something to the words of our God. These promises will all come to pass. Christian, here's what this means for you. God will stop at nothing until your rebel heart is conquered. Until your rebel heart is finally submitted to him, he will stop at nothing. The zeal of the Lord. God is not the kind that ejects. He's the kind that sticks around. And he will do this. And you will come under the government of his son. If you're not here, if you're here, if you're, if you're not here, you're like, oh, we're all here, actually. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you wouldn't yet call yourself a Christian. Here's what this means for you. It means God can be trusted. 700 years before Jesus showed up, he's banking the promise of the arrival of the Messiah on these words. This is just one more evidence that God doesn't fail and he's not about to start today. And so questions that'll be on the screen in a prayer. Where in your life are you struggling to trust God? Because Advent is the invitation to trust again, wherever it's dark. Where in your life do you feel abandoned or forgotten by God? It's a real question, right? Advent is an invitation to rest in his promises again. He's never once forgotten any of his people. I know it may feel as though you're forgotten. Let your feelings be reshaped by what's actually true. He's not forgotten you. And the last one is this. Where in your life do you fear that you failed beyond the reach of God's mercy? Advent. Advent is about the steadfast love of God you haven't gone farther than his mercy can reach. Let's pray together.